Hey, everybody, Elizabeth here. Before we get into today's episode, I wanted to make sure that you know registration is currently open for our Spring Strong Foundations cohort. Strong Foundations is a five-week strength building program brought to you by me and Morgan Bungers. Coach Morgan Bungers is one of the best, most effective strength training coaches in this country. He has worked with some of the most elite athletes in the world, and now he specializes working with people in their 40s, in their 50s, in their 60s who want everyday strength. And this is not about being able to push your suitcase into the overhead compartment on an airplane. We need to be consistently and effectively strength training if we want to maintain the strength of our immune system. Muscle is a critical part of our immune system. And if we are not actively maintaining our strength, we are losing it as we age. And that means we are losing the strength of our immune system. It's also a significant component of our overall metabolism, especially our carbohydrate metabolism. Muscle mass plays a huge role in energy, in mood, mental health, bone health, so many different things. This is just not optional, but a lot of us don't do it because we aren't sure what to do. We aren't sure what not to do. We aren't sure if we're moving well. We don't know how to accommodate for our physical limitations or our current level of fitness, and that is why you need a coach and you'd be hard-pressed to find one better than Morgan Bungers. Now, here's the thing about fitness programs. I've experienced this. My mom, who's in her 70s, has experienced this, where you buy a fitness program and then you're like, okay, but I I can't do that workout because I'm not fit enough or I don't have enough balance or I don't have that equipment or that hurts my knees or it hurts my back. And then you're sort of just left to figure it out yourself, which means we often don't do anything. The great thing about Strong Foundations is that Morgan and I are part of it every single day and you have an unlimited ability to ask us questions in a group setting or via direct message so that Morgan can help you scale for you, for whatever equipment you have, for the time that you have, for your fitness level, for your body and your physical limitations. Five weeks, there's two different tiers. There's a beginner intermediate tier. There's an intermediate advanced tier. The testimonials that we have received from our previous clients will blow your mind. You can check them out and also register for your spot by going to primalpotential.com forward slash strong foundation. Primalpotential.com forward slash strong foundation. If you are an alum, if you have been through strong foundations before, I've already emailed you a renewal link with a special renewal rate. So please use that. If you don't see that email, let me know. For the rest of you, primalpotential.com forward slash strong foundation. We start on May 13th. So grab your spot now. You will have these workouts for life. Four workouts a week for five weeks, two different tiers. So you've got 40 workouts total. Plus, there is a five-part series on your pelvic floor. That is an incredibly important part of your physical fitness, of your strength, of your core strength, of your overall health, of your ability to maintain functional mobility as you get older. We want you to be a part of this. You will not regret joining the Strong Foundations cohort. It is an incredible community. 
everybody needs to be consistently and effectively strength training. And if you're not, it's probably because you don't know how to make it work for you. And it can be made to work for you. It needs to be made to work for you. Primalpotential.com forward slash strong foundation to register now. Let's get into the episode. Welcome to the Primal Potential Podcast, the incremental anti-diet solution for effective permanent weight loss. Primal Potential is committed to helping you overcome emotional eating, hormonal imbalances, unhealthy habits, and your dieting mindset through education and inspiration. We don't just talk about what you should eat and what you should avoid. We talk strategy. Primal Potential is bridging the gap between knowing and doing. Each episode will leave you with concrete tips for making positive changes that make a difference. Primal Potential is here to help you lose weight, get healthy, and master fat loss naturally. Hey guys, welcome back to the Primal Potential Podcast. I am your host, Elizabeth Benton, and today we're going to talk about dietary fat. I've done an episode on cholesterol before, and I got a lot of requests to take a deeper dive into fat. Now, with that said, this is going to be an overview episode. So we're going to talk about what fat is, what saturated fats are. We'll go a little bit into cholesterol. We'll talk about oils, right, and unsaturated fats and things like that. So then I will take a deeper dive into, you know, the best cooking oils to use and things like that on another episode. And I want to uh, ask you to bear with me as we go into this. I normally have a loose outline that I go with and I'm not going to do that today. I'm just going to kind of wing it. So let me know what you think. Let me know if you learned a lot, if this was helpful. And please, please, please reach out to me if you're on the Primal Potential VIP email list. It's the best way to get in touch with me. You can head over to primalpotential.com right on the homepage. Give me your name and email. And that way you can email me because I would really like to know what things that I touch on in this episode you'd like to know more about. Give me your questions. Let me know what needs more information, what deserves an episode all of its own. I really want to do that for you. So be sure to get on that email list so that we can communicate. All right. So we're talking about dietary fat and there is so much misinformation about dietary fat. And I want to clear up the myths and establish the facts because for most people, Fat does not have a positive connotation. And I know I've said before, it's very unfortunate that we refer to dietary fat by the same word that we do body fat, but most people, probably for that reason, have a pretty negative connotation of fat unless you've really focused on incorporating more fat into your diet and noticed the major benefits related to fat loss and focus, memory, hormone balance, skin health, and so much more. If you've done that, you probably have a pretty positive connotation of fat like I do. Um, There was a t-shirt in Austin this past weekend that says fat is the new black and it had a picture of an avocado and I was like, oh my gosh, I should get that. That's so great. But anyway, we tend, it's really crazy how we tend to think that foods that are processed are healthy as long as they're low fat, 
right? But we shy away from foods that are high fat, even when they're whole foods, whole foods naturally packed with vitamins and minerals and antioxidants, things like steak or whole eggs. And a soapbox moment here, and I'm going to piss off a lot of people and I'm totally okay with that. It makes me so crazy when someone will opt to spend money on a box of chemically processed egg whites because they fear a high quality egg with the yolk, right? Or when they'll they'll steer away from a fatty grass-fed steak, but they will eat factory farmed chicken all day long. It makes me crazy. And, and while we've been doing that, where has it got us? While we have been emphasizing these processed foods that are low fat, right, and high chemical, while we have been afraid of eggs and steak, which um, our grandparents certainly were not, where has that got us as a culture? Fat, sick, depressed, unable to focus or concentrate. It's a terrible plan, and I want to get to the bottom of it. So let's start with what fat is, okay? Fat is a macronutrient, a macronutrient. And the difference between a macronutrient and a micronutrient is that macronutrients deliver energy as measured in calories, right? So your macronutrients are going to be fat, protein, carbohydrate, and alcohol. And then your micronutrients are like vitamins and minerals and things like that. Things that have nutritive value, right? They have a role in the body, but they do not provide energy energy we measure in the form of calories. So fat is a macronutrient and every single gram of fat delivers nine calories. So one gram of fat yields nine calories. And you've probably heard me say this before, but it's worth repeating. Calories are not some magical little gremlin that, you know, runs underneath the belt of your pants and makes you look big. Calories are just a unit of measurement, okay? And they measure the energy potential in food. So when we look at fat, where each gram contains nine calories, delivers nine calories, versus protein and carbohydrate, where a gram of protein and a gram of carbohydrate only contains four calories, we think, oh, fat must be fattening. And we're thinking that because we imagine calories as these little gremlins that are making us look fat. And that's not it at all. We need to think of calories as what they are, a unit of measurement indicating the energy potential in a given food. So what that means is that fat delivers twice as much energy to the body as does protein or carbohydrate. Now, we've talked a lot about the building blocks of carbohydrates and how the building blocks of all carbohydrates, whether it's pasta or oats or fruit, the building block of all carbohydrates is sugar. Fat, on the other hand, is made up of fatty acids. So the building blocks of all of our fats are fatty acids, and we classify fats based on the length of their fatty acid chain. So they're either short chain, medium chain, or long chain. And if you've heard me talk about Bulletproof Coffee and MCT oil, that's what we're talking about medium chain fatty acids. And within these chains, these chains are linked. And the links in the chain is what determines whether we classify the fat as a saturated fat 
or an unsaturated fat, a monounsaturated fat versus a polyunsaturated fat. So we have these chains of fatty acids and they can be different lengths, short, medium, or long, right? Pretty straightforward. And then the links in the chain are what is going to tell us if it is a saturated fat or an unsaturated fat. One of the other things I like to draw attention to is that fat has a very functional role in the body. So both fat and protein have structural and functional roles in the body. In addition to that, they provide energy. Carbohydrates are an exception. Carbohydrates do provide energy, right? They have four calories per gram, so that's energy delivery. But carbohydrates do not have a structural role in the body, i.e. we can live without them. We absolutely, positively, 100% cannot live without fat and without protein. Fat is a component of every single cell in your body. When you eat fat, your body is using that in part to fix your cells and to generate new cells. Your cell membrane is largely made up of fat, and that is what holds your body together, quite literally. Plus, your brain is about 60% fat, 6-0. On top of that, fat is required to make all of your hormones. And remember that hormones are what dictates fat loss. So if you aren't eating enough fat, and we see this a lot in people who crash diet, they go like low fat, no fat, you cause hormonal imbalances just by not giving your body the substrates it needs to do what it has to do and produce these hormones and keep your hormones in balance. Fat is required to make all of your hormones. So you better be getting not only enough fat, but quality fat if you hope to truly burn fat and have an efficient metabolism. Fat is one of the primary regulators of metabolism and growth and development. Plus, it's required to metabolize fat-soluble vitamins. So there's a bunch of different vitamins, but A, D, E, and K are all what are called fat-soluble. They have to be basically kind of carried through the body in fat. So if you are not getting enough fat, you could be, even if you're consuming enough vitamin A, vitamin D, vitamin E, vitamin K, you can't metabolize it if you don't have adequate fat. Plus the growth and calcification, blah, blah, blah. Let me try that again. The growth and calcification of your bone requires adequate fat intake. And then if we want to get totally vain, which I'm so down for, I can do that all day long. I'm really good at it. Fat keeps you looking young, right? It makes your hair shiny and beautiful. It makes your skin supple and soft. It helps to prevent skin wrinkles. It makes your nails really strong and beautiful. And it helps with your attention, your focus, your memory, and your mood, which, um, hey, I'm all for looking good and being in a good mood. And people around me don't really like it if Neither of those things are the case. So let's talk for a second about kind of how our fat consumption has changed over the years, because hundreds of years ago, our ancestors ate about 10 times more fat than we do now in the standard American diet. It was a moderately high fat diet that they consumed because they ate all parts of the animals that they hunted to eat, especially the fat because it's so energy dense, right? It was considered a delicacy. So historically, they were eating 10 times more fat 
but now we're eating 10 times less fat and we are sicker than ever. And on top of that, or or maybe the reason for that is that we've been trained to fear fat. And part of it probably is the name, right? The really unfortunate situation where the dietary fat, food fat, is called by the same thing as the stuff we'd really prefer to have off of our bodies. But we've been told that Fat consumption increases your risk of heart disease. And we've been told that if you eat cholesterol, your serum or your blood cholesterol will be higher. We've been told that fat intake triggers inflammation and disease. And, of course, we've been told and many of us believe that fat makes you fat. But if that were true, and you know me, I love to kind of go back to, don't believe what I say, but let's just look at it from a common sense perspective. If it were true that fat makes us sick and fat makes us fat, why, if we are now eating so much less fat, are we so much more overweight, so much more sick, right? Why is heart disease a relatively new problem if fat intakes were historically so much higher? Seriously, think about it. The first heart attack was recorded in 1912, but we have been lied to about the cause of those kinds of things. And there's a woman named Dr. Mary Enig. She's a, she's a doctor. She's a famous nutrition researcher. And one quote that I love from her, and, and again, this is just one person, but I'm going to try and make this case over the course of this podcast. She says, the idea that saturated fats cause heart disease is completely wrong But the statement has been published so many times over the last three or more decades that it's very difficult to convince people otherwise unless they are willing to take time to read and learn what produced the anti-saturated fat agenda. So basically she's saying there's no data to prove that saturated fats cause heart disease, but people have been screaming it so loud and proud that it's kind of hard to convince people that it's not true unless you're willing to really open your mind to understanding where that message came from and who really benefited from it, okay? So it was perpetuated by some group of people or multiple groups of people. Why would they do that? What did they have to gain? And it started... Gosh, a long time ago, back in the 1950s, in 1954, there was some research done with rabbits, rabbits, bunnies, like little Peter Rabbit. And they were fed a cholesterol-rich diet, right? Animal products that are naturally high in cholesterol. And the little bunnies developed arterial damage. And the researcher concluded that the same thing must happen in humans, right? If you eat animal products that are high in cholesterol, you will develop arterial damage. And so that was kind of the beginning of this anti-fat movement. But I'm just going to raise the flag here and say we are not rabbits. If you're listening to this and you're a bunny, like, (laughs) I want to meet you. But we are not rabbits. And rabbits are herbivores. Rabbits are not humans, and rabbits are herbivores. Rabbits are meant to eat plants. Humans are not herbivores, and humans are also not rabbits. We have entirely different metabolic machinery. Our metabolisms, as humans, not rabbits, are designed to process a variety of food, including including animal foods. So you can't take 
an animal that's not meant to eat other animals and then say, oh, well, something bad happened. Well, yeah, I mean, go chew on some pennies and see what happens to you. Please don't. I'm, that's I'm, don't want to get myself into legal trouble. I do not advise eating pennies under any circumstances. OK, so that was kind of the beginning. Then also in the 50s, there was a man with a platform. OK, Ansel Keys, and he was on the board of the American Heart Association. He, thanks buddy, published observational data. Now this is not research, this this is observation, pure thoughts, okay? He did not do research, he just looked around and shared what he thought he saw, okay? And he said that populations with access to more dietary fat tend to have more deaths from heart disease. But there are a few problems with this, a few big problems, actually. That's not true. That's not what the data actually showed. It's just what he reported. And it suggests that there's a correlation, but it doesn't suggest that they have anything to do with each other, right? Maybe it's just that populations with more access to dietary fat also have more access to more everything and they tend to eat more, right? I mean, there's so many different theories um, and so many different conclusions that you could draw, but to make that observation is just very, very limited in perspective. And when we look at things that are suggestive of correlation, right, we could say, in countries where they eat more vegetables, there's higher infant mortality, so eating vegetables causes babies to die. I mean, that's ridiculous, right? But you could look at any population and pick two totally unrelated things and say, well, since this happens and this happens, it must mean they go together, and it doesn't. Not only that, but he didn't address any of the information that did not support his findings. However, he had a platform and he had power and he used that to perpetuate this anti-fat movement. Fast forward a couple of decades in 84, 1984, Time magazine, you might have seen this because they recently kind of had an opposite cover uh, just last year to this cover that they did in 84. But they had a cover story saying that there was a cholesterol-lowering drug trial that showed that when you remove damaged lipids, damaged fats from the body, you lower your risk of heart disease, okay? So the magazine interpreted this as if you remove cholesterol-rich foods from your diet, you'll lower your risk of heart disease. But they never looked at where the damaged lipids came from. Like, why is there damage to begin with? What caused that? And like I said, just last year, they did this, this 1984 cover had a smiley face with the eyes as eggs and bacon making it frown. And then just last year, they did a cover with a smiley face, eggs as the eyes, and bacon making it smile, kind of saying like, oh, looks like maybe things have changed a little bit. Yeah, you think? Didn't really work so well. But from this information or misinformation, the food industry capitalized on a major opportunity, right? A major opportunity. Well, if whole foods are naturally higher in fat, if we can make processed foods and say they're low fat and tell people they're healthy, we can make a lot of money. And the market was flooded with low fat foods, highly profitable, highly processed. And these food companies funded studies 
They funded and paid for research to give them the outcome they wanted to suggest that fat is unhealthy. So it's always important to look at the kind of driving force behind the research. Who's paying for the research and what outcome are they looking for? There are conflicts of interest everywhere, right? There were people from the crop oil industry, like canola oil, corn oil, soybean oil, on that held positions with the FDA, the American Medical Association, and the Senate Select Committee for Nutrition and Human Needs. The American Heart Association in 1968 removed all of the references that they had previously written in related to the negative health effects of trans fats, right? They removed all of those references. Why? Because there were people of power on those boards representing food industry that would make a lot of money from not having people fear trans fats. Plus, who are some of the donors for the American Dietetic Association, which is now, it's not called the American Dietetic Association anymore. I think it's the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics. But anyway, who are some of their major donors? Coca-Cola, General Mills, Kellogg's, Soy Joy. So there are a lot, just like in all areas of life, right? There are political and financial interests. And so we have to consider if someone is selling something, what is their interest? If someone is selling you granola, their interest is to tell you that it's really, really good for you. But if we stay away from the packaged stuff, we can do a lot for our health. And while all this was happening, these conflicts of interest, the low-fat processed foods flooding the market, obesity in adults more than doubled, and extreme obesity more than tripled. And we're just looking at a window here from like mm, early 80s to 2010, right? And I, there are a couple quotes here that I think I want to draw your attention to because mm, I think sometimes when there's these long-standing misconceptions, it's just helpful to hear that there's more than one voice saying, yeah, I know you heard it for the last 30 years, but it's not true. So, um, Dr. George Mann, uh, he says, ongoing issues of pride, profit, and prejudice cause outdated and never proven notions of the saturated fat cholesterol hypotheses to persist despite a lack of supportive evidence, even in medical literature. So it's it's money, right? It's money that allowed these myths to be perpetuated, even though they couldn't be supported by legit science. Remember, anybody can put out an article that says anything. Anybody can say that a study concludes anything. It doesn't mean it's well-designed. It doesn't mean it's true. It doesn't mean it's right. And there was an analysis of a lot of research, 20, 20 plus studies, and I think like almost 400,000 subjects. And this review of the literature was published in the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition. And it says there is no significant evidence, no significant evidence for concluding that dietary fat is associated with an increased risk of heart disease, which of course begs the question, so what causes heart disease? Because obviously we've seen a huge increase in heart disease and arterial damage and all of those things. So what is driving heart disease? Inflammation. Inflammation. Now we'll talk about where and what, you know, what triggers inflammation. 
But fat and cholesterol actually provides damage control. Cholesterol goes to the site of the inflammation to help heal new cells. Remember we said that fat is a component of every single cell in your body. And when there is inflammation, which is damage, your body sends new cells to the scene of the damage to fix it, right? To fix it. So in the cases of chronic inflammation, these healing substances, which includes fat, they go to the scene of the crime, but we keep doing damage through our lifestyle, through our food choices. We're triggering inflammation day in and day out. We're sending more fat to the scene of the crime and you get a pile up. You absolutely do. But the issue is not the fat. The issue is stop the damage. Stop the damage. And Liz Wolf in her book, Eat the Yolks, which I'll link to in the show notes over on primalpotential.com, she gives an analogy. And I don't remember if she says police or ambulances, but either way, she says it's like saying that since police are at the scene of every crime, then all we have to do is get rid of the police and there'll be no more crime, right? And that's the way the argument against cholesterol is. Like, eat less cholesterol and you won't have heart disease. No, 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 no. That's not it at all. Our vascular disease comes largely from inflammation and fat, whether it's cholesterol or saturated fat, is trying to remove the damage, repair the damage. So while we're kind of on the topic, let's talk a little bit more about cholesterol. And I I did a Q&A episode on cholesterol that I'll link to in the show notes over on primalpotential.com, but we'll just kind of go into it now since we're here and we're hanging out. Cholesterol is a healing substance right? And then we have LDL and HDL that are carriers of cholesterol, essentially. Cholesterol is a steroid hormone and every single cell in your body needs it and your body can produce it all on its own, whether you consume it or not. That's how important it is. Now, producing it by yourself in your own body is a very inefficient process. So your body prefers that you get it from food. And then when you do, it downregulates internal production of it. But human breast milk actually has special enzymes to improve cholesterol absorption so that babies get the cholesterol that they need because it's so important. Cholesterol is a building block for your cells, for your hormones. Your body uses cholesterol to make vitamin D, also for serotonin production, which is one of those feel-good chemicals in your brain that supports mood. Cholesterol is critical for brain function. It's also an antioxidant, and it supports your immune system and supports the elimination of toxins. Now, LDL and HDL kind of get confused too. LDL gets a bad rap as like your bad cholesterol number when you go to the doctor and HDL is your good cholesterol number, right? But I think it's easy to think of them as carriers, okay? LDL is going to be the shuttle that carries cholesterol to the site of damage so that cholesterol can repair, HDL is what carries cholesterol away from the site of the damage so it can be recycled, okay? So it's not so much good and bad, but what it is doing. When there is more damage, there's more LDL, there's more of the quote-unquote bad cholesterol because it's saying we got a problem here, we need more shuttles to take the cholesterol to the scene of the crime, right? And then when there's less damage happening, there's more 
HDL because we have more of a need to recycle cholesterol because there isn't quite as much damage. Does that make sense? So if cholesterol and dietary fat in general or fat in the body, new cells, are responding to inflammation or damage in the body, what causes this damage? And obviously the number one thing I've been talking about is inflammation, but also injury, illness, poor food choices, and that's largely from processed foods and chronic overconsumption of carbohydrates. Also consuming unstable fats like trans fats and unstable crop oils, smoking, high blood pressure, chronic stress. The other thing to keep in mind here, though, is that cholesterol naturally rises as we age. Why? And you might be thinking, well, that's really unfair, right? Our hormones get messed up. Our cholesterol naturally rises. Think about it, though. If cholesterol is a healing substance and cholesterol is a component of every cell in your body, well, there's more healing and repair and recovery that needs to happen as we get older, right? Our bodies are breaking down and it's naturally trying to stay well and stay healthy and stay alive, right? And so there's more of a need for this healing and repair. So cholesterol intake as you get older is very, very important. All right, so I mentioned earlier, we're going to switch gears here. We're going to talk a little bit about saturated fat versus unsaturated fat. And I mentioned that the building blocks of fat are going to be fatty acids, right? And these fatty acids are chains of fatty acids. You either have a short chain, a medium chain, or a long chain. And the links of the chain, whether they're all linked up or there are some missing links, determine whether it's saturated or unsaturated. So this is really easy from a common sense perspective when you understand it. A saturated fat means that all the links are there. There are no missing links. So think about the chain being saturated with links. There's no more space, right? And that makes it very stable. An unsaturated fat has some missing links. A monounsaturated fat is going to have one missing link in the chain. And, excuse me, a polyunsaturated fat is going to have multiple missing links in the chain. And that actually makes the fat less stable and more prone to oxidation or going rancid, going bad. So I kind of feel like we're almost as misinformed about saturated fat as we are about cholesterol. Saturated fat is a component of all of your cells. It's what gives them their structure. When you think saturated, think stable, think solid. Saturated fats are required to protect your liver and allow your liver to detoxify uh, harmful substances from your body. And saturated fats are required to make sure that calcium is absorbed by your bones. So saturated equals stable, okay? Unsaturated fats are going to have the missing links, and there are a couple of exceptions. In general, we want to focus more on saturated fats than unsaturated fats because the saturated are more stable and they're not going to be as prone to damage and oxidation. The exception here is omega-3s and omega-6s. They are unsaturated, but they do provide tremendous health benefits, and we do want to make sure that we get them, okay? The thing to keep in mind is that most fats from whole foods have a little bit of a mix of fats, but here's what makes fats from whole foods most valuable. 
they're naturally packaged with things that protect the fat. So if we use the example of a piece of salmon, right? The salmon itself, I talked about this in the omega-3 episode, the salmon itself as a whole food not only has healthy fats that your body needs, but it also naturally has vitamins, minerals, and antioxidants as a part of that fish that protect the fish, protect the fat, and keep that fat very stable, keep it from breaking down. When fats break down in our body, Remember, as we eat fat, the body uses it as substrate, as building block for more cells. So if you have unstable fats that are prone to oxidation, that are prone to going rancid, you're, if that's all you're giving your body, that's what your body is incorporating into your cells. So now you have cells that are prone to oxidation and that is the starting point for disease versus fats that are very secure and strong and stable getting incorporated into your cells and they are resistant to oxidation and therefore they help keep you healthy. Now, when we eat whole foods, they naturally contain other protective elements like vitamins, antioxidants, minerals, things like that. So they don't break down. When we're talking about processed foods, where everything has been stripped out, or even sometimes when we're talking about supplements, we don't have the natural built-in protection that the food was meant to have. So we really want to emphasize those stable fats that are not going to be prone to oxidation because that makes our cells less safe, secure, stable, and able to keep us healthy, all right? Now let's talk for a minute because we're we're coming up, we're past a half an hour now, but I want to talk about trans fats. And one of the things that makes a fat a trans fat is the process of partial hydrogenation. And a lot of companies, they won't say trans fat on their label, but if you read and you see the phrase partially hydrogenated on the ingredient list, that is a trans fat, okay? That should be a red flag saying this is not something you should be eating on a regular basis if you want to be healthy. Basically, when you partially hydrogenate a fat, you take something that's normally soft or liquid at room temperature and you make it solid. You make it immovable. You make it kind of like Crisco, right? Plastic, shelf stable. It's easily incorporated to process foods to make them be able to sit on a shelf for months or weeks or years and not go bad. And it improves the mouthfeel. They are very dangerous, all right? There's so many studies that show that these lead to instability in our body, oxidative damage. These plastic fats, these chemical fats, if that's what you're giving your body, they do get incorporated into your cells. That is bad, bad news, okay? So partial hydrogenation is what makes something a trans fat. And back in 2006, the FDA started requiring that trans fats be labeled on processed food products, but there's a loophole. If you have less than half of a gram of trans fats per serving, you can actually claim on your product that it is trans fat free. And that really makes me mad because it's not trans fat free. And for a lot of these processed foods, who the heck eats one serving. I want to know if there are any. So reading the label and seeing if it has anything partially hydrogenated is going to be a key. Just because it says trans fat free does not mean it's trans fat free, okay? 
So like I said, these unstable fats can get incorporated into your body and put you at risk. All right. Now let's talk about oils for a second. And a lot of people want to know, you know, what's the best oil? Like, aren't these vegetable oils good for me because they're from vegetables? They're not really from vegetables, okay? They're not really from vegetables. Corn oil, corn is a grain, all right? Soybean oil, soybeans are a legume. Canola oil comes from a seed. Cottonseed oil comes from cotton. So these vegetable oils are not vegetables, okay? If you're using cooking oils, you want to choose oils from whole foods. Avocado, coconut, olive oil, okay? From a practical standpoint in terms of fat loss, Fat, dietary fat, is very, very energy dense. It is going to fuel your body, increase your energy because it provides more energy potential than protein or carbohydrate. Plus, because of its energy potential, it's really going to help you stay full. And it doesn't produce an insulin response. Remember, insulin is that storage hormone that takes us out of fat burning mode. It doesn't produce an insulin response the way that carbs or protein can. How do you know if you're eating too much fat? Well, are you making progress towards your goal? Okay, so when we talk about practical implementation, the most important thing that I think you can do is keep your tracking document. You can do it on paper. You know, I like to use Google Docs. You can do it on an app. You can do it however you want. But write down what you eat, how much and when, and also pay attention to your hormonal biofeedback, things like mood, quality of sleep, hunger, cravings, energy, okay? You want to pay attention to that and track your progress, not on a scale. Body weight has too many other influencing factors with the way your clothes feel or your waist and hip circumference. That's a good starting point. So if you feel great and you are losing fat, you're not eating too much fat, okay? If you feel great and you're not making progress, you might want to dial back one or two things until you get to the point where you feel great and you're making progress. If you don't feel great and you're making progress, you might want to add a little bit more fat or add a little bit more vegetable or add a little bit more protein, right? And if you are gaining, if you are putting on inches around your waist and hips, whether you feel good or not, you are overfueling in one way or another. That doesn't necessarily mean it's fat, but that's how you know if you're eating too much. Are you making progress and how do you feel? It's very, very individual. There is no way to say, eat this much fat, and if you have any more, it's too much. It's totally based on your body. It's based on what else you're eating. People will say, is three eggs and four strips of bacon too much for breakfast? I don't know. It's relative to what are you doing for lunch? What are you doing for dinner? How active are you? How much do you weigh? And what's your progress? And when I say how much do you weigh, I mean, it's going to be a very different situation for somebody who is... Um, 200 pounds heavier than I am or 200 pounds lighter than you are, whatever it is. Um, so it's very, very relative. There is no way to say, well, I've been having, you know, bacon and avocado and egg at breakfast. Is that too much fat? I don't know. Is it? Are you making progress? How do you feel? What else are you eating for the rest of the day? Does that make sense? From another practical implementation standpoint, if you're not sure how to get more fat or what healthy fat is, always strive for whole foods. Do not fear fat, right? Great whole food sources of eggs are going to be coconut, right? 
eggs and I would strive for um, cage-free, hormone-free eggs and things like that. Avocado is a great one. Wild-caught salmon, grass-fed butter. Like I mentioned a few minutes ago, if you're choosing oils, I love avocado oil, coconut oil. I sometimes use extra virgin olive oil. Macadamia nuts are a fantastic source of fat. Even some dairy products, but because I'm hormonally sensitive, I like to emphasize hormone-free dairy products, um, and some people are just sensitive to dairy in general. A great book to read that I will link to on the show notes page at primalpotential.com is Eat the Yolks by Liz Wolf. I will link to that. It's an awesome read. It's an easy read. She makes it super clear and easy to understand, and I think she's really funny too. So like I said at the start, do me a favor, go over to primalpotential.com, get on the VIP email list so that you can email me and let me know where you want me to go into more detail, what topics require further explanation, what questions you have, and how you would like me to follow up on this information about fat. So thank you so much for joining me. I hope you'll truly head over to Primal Potential, get on the VIP email list so that we can hang out and chat and I can answer your questions. And until next time, guys, stay healthy. This is your moment, your moment to move forward and make progress. It's time to see where an education can take you. For over 130 years, Strayer University has been at the forefront of change, offering programs that help students like you get ahead and stay ahead, so you can keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by Chef.